Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is I Am the Change I Seek, subtitle A Primer in Self-Realization. And our author is Kathleen Suneja. Thank you, Kathleen, for joining me today. My pleasure. It's wonderful to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know you probably have a busy schedule with your history as a philosopher, activist, and also a writer. You have an extensive background in a, in a wide variety of things. Why did this book come about? What was the reason you decided to write this? Well, I wanted to give the reader an insider's view on how to effect real change in his or her life. And I wanted to share my journey in self-realization that began during the dark days of the Cold War. So I made a, this, a deliberate attempt to change my life and I wanted to open doors for others, so therefore I wrote the book. I'm talking to you. You are in the United States currently. Were you always, were you born here in the United States? No, I was born in in a country called India, and I grew up there, and I saw the uh, Soviet takeover of the Indian government back in 1970, and I decided to do something about it. And I began the journey towards uh, winning back the freedom we were losing. And that's why I I, I took this journey on, and that led me to self-realization. And how long have you been in the United States? I've been here for the last 33 years. 33 years. And your current focus, what besides writing do you do also involve yourself in? I still um, do self-realization. I practice it in my daily life. I do a lot of meditation and yoga and exercise. That helps me to keep my body, body, mind, and spirit. So I'm still on this journey. It's an everlasting journey, as we all know. So I remain committed to to exploring my inner being. And the the term self-realization, can you explain? Expand on that for me and for my listeners. Yeah, self-realization is a way, in my opinion, to overcome adversity in order to regain and realize the inner being. So it's a search for your spiritual center. It's a a search to overcome yourself and any difficulties you have in within your inner being. Yeah. And and this book that you've written. Who do you think Mm -hmm. will be most interested in reading it? Describe your target audience. Well, I have found people from all over the world find, you know, reading the book. It's become um, a guide to people who went to Sochi, for example, Olympians who are overcoming their weaknesses or trying to focus their lives on winning or overcoming their adversities within I found people, just ordinary people, reading it and making a change in their lives, finding 
piece, I found elderly people, I found young young people. So it's really anyone who wants to overcome adversity. Why did you start the movement for freedom to oppose the Soviet-style dictatorships? How did that come about? It was um, an inner purpose that I felt I had to accomplish. I felt freedom was essential to each person's lives and to my life as well. I valued freedom more than anything else in the world. And therefore, I reached out to my inner being, and I also reached out to like-minded people who felt that the Soviet system was not favorable to my life, and that's why I started the movement. And before, lo and behold, before I knew it, everyone was reaching out to me who was interested in freedom, and, and the crowds just grew, and it became a worldwide movement against the Soviets. And as we all know, that in 1989, the great uh, Berlin Wall collapsed and freed the people of Eastern Europe, and then the Soviet Union itself collapsed. There must have been some obstacles. What were the main obstacles to this succeeding? Well, the main obstacles are, of course, the external. I divide them into the external and the internal. The external obstacles are obviously the and the police, the secret police, you know, the authoritarian, totalitarian dictatorship instruments of power, people coming to suppress you, to try and take away your right to um, express yourself. And the inner, as I speak to, is your focus on your inner self, where you have to learn to overcome your own uh, self-doubt, your fears, and other um, things that you you feel you can't do. There must have been some some main obstacles that you had to address in trying to overcome this this obstacle that was in the way of uh, freedom. What was that, and how did you succeed in getting that accomplished? Well, my main obstacle was, of course, my inner being, which was sometimes unprepared for it, unprepared and scared, fear, and in facing adversity. And it was relentless, you know, the the external environment of authoritarianism, you know, tends to suppress you in every way. Or and so you have to overcome that, and that's the main thing that you have to overcome, whether it's in a in a personal situation or it's in a public situation where the state is trying to over is suppressing you. So one has to find that inner being. Mostly, it's your inner being that you have to to focus on to reach um, self-realization. There's a lot of people that deal with anger, and there were a lot yes. of uh, people that had anger in this particular scenario. How do you overcome it? How do you overcome anger? Well, the most important thing with overcoming anger is to focus on understanding what the problem is, reason and and self-learning. You have to calm yourself down, find that core of your inner self and think of solutions to a problem rather than getting overcome by the emotion of anger, Hmm. the violence of anger within you, calming yourself down and finding that inner being and using that energy to motivate yourself into finding peaceful solutions. And anger is a great motivator, but it is also 
can be a great destroyer of your inner being. So you have to use that energy that is uh, released by that anger to find a peaceful way to overcome problems. You've outlined some some ideas and Mm -hmm. some steps towards self-realization. What are those in the book? The eight, I lay out eight steps to self-realization, and the first is to set your priorities and use the time you spend to actively learn more about yourself. And it's discipline yourself uh, to every day by focusing upon your basic being. Of course, one begins with the physical body, and I've heard from not just not just myself, but experienced it from others as well, that exercise is a wonderful way to um, calm yourself down, to focus within, learn to to breathe and exercise, and most people do that, but one has to do it in a way that that focuses yourself. The second is uh, performing housekeeping thoughts on your thoughts and evaluate yourself as you go along. So you reject or discard old thoughts that don't assist you, such as anger, and um, redirect your thoughts to evaluate yourself in a whole new light. The third is when you evaluate yourself, keep a journal on your thoughts or a personal diary. Make progress notes on yourself. Write your observations and keep this diary in a secure place so that nobody can read it. It's important that it stays private. The fourth is I find reasons to release myself from anger by placing the person whom I harbor anger against in the most favorable light. Try to understand the other person. Don't dwell on the anger, but reach out the person to the other person in love. I've always done that, and I found that it in the in the long run, it you can't reach out to another person and make a peace with not just yourself but with the other person as well. And the fifth um, step I talk about is finding ways to um, pray or inspire yourself. So I find verses from any holy book that 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 um, inspire you. I would use a simple verse like, make me a channel of your peace or abide with me to inspire me to to uh, find my inner being. However, I have also found simple words like, I live, I love, and I am. These are simple words when spoken together can help you to inspire yourself uh, to find your inner being. I also find the sixth step is uh, to set aside time to renew yourself, to teach yourself to focus on the center of your whole being by becoming conscious of your energy flow through your body and feel that energy as it flows through you. It's important to feel that energy, the energy that we all have in our, within ourselves and redirect it towards your finding your spirit. And seventh and the final one, is put everything that is in on your plate, everything in your life, your life on the agenda. Refocus your whole life and work with everything in your life, and you make that change to overcome adversity. 
in addition to the eight steps towards self-realization, do you have any scenes or any characters or any observations of events that might grab the reader's attention? Oh, there are so many moments. Uh, It's hard for me to focus on just one. I mean, there were moments when I saw uncommon courage of people uh, reaching out every day, persisting in holding demonstrations or going out on the street for their freedom, being arrested and taken, hauled away, and then coming out the next day and, and standing out in the same, very same place to be um, arrested again. People were resilient to the point of, you know, just admiration. So your book is more than just a step-by-step workbook toward self-realization. It also includes practical application and and stories of people who have been successful in uh, achieving great things in their lives. Yes, but I have to add that it's primarily my story and my experiences. I haven't gone out and included experiences I haven't personally seen on my own, but these are things that I experienced in my life because I wanted to share my story. The title of the book is I Am the Change I Seek, a Primer in Self-Realization. Our author, Kathleen Seneja. Thank you, Kathleen, for joining me today. Where do we get copies of this book? We can get it online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and it's been picked up by a whole lot of uh, online publishers as well as there's an e-book and an audio book as well, and it can be bought at exlibris.com from their bookstore. And do you possibly have a website? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, thank you for asking. I have a website, www.iamthechangeiseek, And I also have a link to uh, Facebook, Twitter, and um, goodreads.com, a blog. Thank you, Kathleen, for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. 
through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book title today is George Butler. And joining us from Great Britain is our author, C.B. Leston. Welcome, sir, to the program. Well, thank you very much. This is a fictional work. Tell us the background of this story. The back of the cover reads like this. George Butler and his friends foresaw that one day their country would collapse under the unsustainable weight of its borrowing. That has a contemporary idea and theme to it. Tell me the background and why you were motivated to write this book. People um, talk and write a great deal in the UK and across Europe and possibly in America about the problems of national debts. But we only talk. Uh, and wherever you go, people are worried, very worried, that somehow or other, living beyond their means uh, will come and go on forever. forever. There's um, a limit to how much you can borrow and how much you can continually borrow. So that is on a lot of people's minds, and it's certainly been on my mind for some many years, really, that uh, we don't seem to be complacent about the problem. And we are not helped by politicians who continually promise us better things and growth in the future and uh, all will be well and everybody be better off in the end. But there's um, scepticism about that, widespread. And what happened in my case was eventually over the period of time, I started to speculate as to quite what the consequences would be if things did go wrong. And of course they did go wrong in Greece and the real model for this book is Greece and its problems. And that was a very, very foreseeable collapse so, of the country. So the book story, uh, the storyline is actually set in contemporary times. Very contemporary, absolutely up to date as of this minute. The name George Butler, what is the derivation of that? Why was that chosen as the title? <laughs> Nothing to do with the Chancellor of the Exchequer of Great Britain. <laughs> George Osborne, no. That that was just a name that came into my head. Uh, but the country itself is not exactly, um, uh, shall we say, fictional in the sense that the country, the, the fictitious country is called Barovia, uh, with the emphasis on borrow. <laughs> uh-huh. So this, this is a country that is, has, this not fictional country, has lived for years above its means by borrowing money. I think a lot of us can relate to uh, what you have described as Barovia. Is there a specific bit of information or an underlying theme that you want to convey to your audience? Yes, it is. But we are living close to a cliff edge. Uh, and we have, ha- we have seen in recent years uh, the, the near collapse of Greece and uh, very, very serious consequences in Portugal and Ireland. But those nations were rescued from going over the edge by uh, international aid, uh, 
loans, effectively. But uh, that can't go on forever. And I was speculating on what happens if you have a country like Great Britain, for instance, which has uh, large urban populations. We import a third of our food. What would happen if we ran into the same problem as Greece with our borrowings and no one came to our aid? Or we appeared to have no one coming to our aid? Yes. Because in this book, somebody does come to the aid of Barovia, but on terms. But the consequences, one thinks in terms of how much money would I lose and so forth, Eventually, I came to the conclusion as I wrote the book that the consequences are more concerned with the maintenance of law and order than they are of financial affairs. Mm. We can all cope with going a bit bust and reducing our standard of living, but if it came to the worst, the thing that would hit us hardest would be if the government of the day failed and with it, law and order failed. And we had a front in Britain a few years ago when we had some riots which for a few days uh, across, across the uh, big cities appear to have got out of hand with arson, looting, on a shocking scale. Hmm. Just contemplate that on a bigger scale and you see that's the background to the book. That could be frightening. Hmm. You mentioned that George and his friends come up with a plan if the worst came to worse. Can you describe what that plan would be? Yes. It, it, it strikes me that um, the problem, if and when they emerge in that sense, will be worse in the city or cities than they are in the countryside. Uh, and one of the saviors of perhaps Portugal, Greece and Ireland is that they, the people retain close links, family links, and they have close, they're close, to, they're close to the countryside, they're close to the food source. What happens if not? So I, I deliberately set my main characters as prosperous people living in a large city and what consequences might flow if it became inevitable that the government was going to fail. Who was going to look after the people in that city? Who was going to maintain law and order? And so the, the story is that George and his friends have a bit of foresight and they think we, if things start getting bad, we need to have somewhere to go. And so they buy themselves a country retreat in a, in a valley some hundred miles or so away from the, uh, from the city. Uh, but unfortunately, before they can uh, actually execute their plan, they, they realise something totally unforeseen has happened. They have been locked into the city. Mm. Mm. Because somebody's had an even bigger plan than they have. Somebody has foreseen the possibility and decided the best way to, to prevent a total breakdown of law and order for the entire country is to lock the people of the city into the city and not let them get out and rampage around the countryside. That's a scary thought. And, Which is uh, very scary for A number yes. of people have told me that they found the book quite frightening. Uh-huh. Well, thank you for scaring us. I, 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 that also can be a good read, even though it might be frightening. Who do you think will enjoy reading this story, this fictional account? Well, present I've only circulated the copies I got off at Cleavis through uh, around friends and so forth and neighbours. And certainly teenagers seem to enjoy it. Now, that may be that teenagers have got their heads screwed on better than we think and that they themselves are not happy. This generation is living well and passing the borrowings on to them to pay back in the course of time. So they seem to enjoy it. And older people who uh, perhaps realise have come from tougher times and think probably we do now live better than we should be doing, they also enjoy it. I've had very good um, feedback from people across a variety of um, backgrounds who feel that I am, uh, I've written something that 
records some disturbing thoughts, perhaps, that Wamsley have also had. Mm. So it's a thoughtful interpretation of where we are in history and where we may end up if we don't change our ways. Well, I think that's a jolly good description. How long did it take you to put your novel together? I started writing in the uh, February last year, and I finished it in August. A great accomplishment, 251 pages. This is not the first piece of work that you've ever published, but it's the first fictional novel. Was there any self-discovery in your research or in your putting this storyline together? Um, It's so far that I I was surprised to find that once you started the ball rolling, as it were, and set up some characters, they they take over, and, and you put the people into situations and it's, it's not for you to get, get them out of it. You have to get them out of it in the way that they would get out of it. That, that um, was a novelty to me. I hadn't, uh, the sort of writing I do is very formalized and uh, based on facts and so forth. So that, that was a surprise to find that uh, the story, to some extent, goes out of your own hands and uh, into the hands of the characters you've created. As a reader of books, what stories, what authors impressed you the most, and how did they influence your writing? I, I've always liked plain-style writing. I, I'm not really one for what you might call clever prose. I think mine will be described as simple prose. And so uh, writers of the style of John Steinbeck, I was very impressed by Harper Lee and uh, writers like Graham Greene. Uh, Evelyn Waugh, people who you can pick up a book and you can read it comfortably from sentence to sentence and you are, you're not troubled by trying to work out who's doing what particularly, but you can see it's very easy to read. So I, I was, and I have to, in my, uh, in my work, I have to write that style of writing if that's necessary. So it wasn't terribly hard to, in fact, I, I think I had no option but to write this book in the same style. That's what I wanted to do. Your book title certainly is straightforward to the point and uh, non-complicated. George Butler. It couldn't be any more straightforward than that. If you were to receive a Pulitzer Prize for for your writing, or if you don't, uh, what are your long-term professional goals as a writer and in life? Well, (laughs) um, you have to perhaps bear in mind the fact that I'm 76. So um, long-term goals, perhaps, maybe you're thinking past. But uh, I enjoy writing. I don't necessarily want to write any more of the serious works that I have. That style of writing, that is very hard mental work. And tedious. Yes, you, I mean, you, and, you, and you've got to be right. You don't have any flexibility. But, but certainly, um, if I have the time, and I'm still working uh, at my day job, so to speak, I, I would uh, and will write another book, maybe a sequel to George Butler, who knows. Fabulous. I hope we're able to talk about that when it does get published. Is there a particular scene or event in this book that stands out from all of the rest and makes it appealing as an exciting read? Well, I would like to think that I I, I introduced something into the first chapter, which certainly indicates that things are not normal, because uh, George is strolling around in the middle of the night looking at four stolen ambulances in his little housing, in the little development that he's built for himself and his friends. So that raises questions as to what on earth are they doing with four stolen ambulances. But I think perhaps the key point in terms of the decision that they have to do something comes when sitting around a 
dinner party, one person asked the question in, consent, in relation to the possibility of uh, the nation's borrowings getting too much for it to pay its debts and it collapses. Who will feed the people in the cities who live on welfare? Uh, and, and that's a question that apparently frightens everyone. Mm-hmm. Even thinking about an answer to that, um, I don't know how it is in America, but in, this, in the UK we have large urban population with sizable proportions reliant on the government for food. It's becoming becoming that way in the United States as well, um, unfortunately. That really does raise a question as to how, how would we cope with that? Have, have, we, have we lost the structure that perhaps we once had of family structures and various closeness of the countryside and so forth? Have we lost that? And are we now in unknown territory? Are you able to describe the the ending of this book as being uplifting or positive, or is it one that leaves you thinking? Uh, it certainly leaves you thinking, because what, what happened, I didn't plan out the book in, in detail, in that sense. I, I set off with an idea and let it take me where it took me to. Uh, I, I had got them locked in a city, then I had to work out how, how they might get out and what that might, what they might do. But then, in order to it was necessary that somebody, somewhere, would come to their assistance, even if it wasn't the International Monetary Fund or somebody like that, or the European Bank. Somebody would help them. Um, so the uplifting part is, yes, they do get some help, and they do have hope. But what I, what I have, not, have not endeavoured to do is go beyond the thought that George eventually is shouldered with the burden of trying to lead them to a, a better place. The whole nation to a better place. Well, was that the most challenging part of writing your book? No, no. But, well, I, I, I haven't done that, that part. But yes, get, getting to an ending that was, I believed, was credible. Uh, a situation that's keep, keeping that credibility going, I, I found quite difficult because the the unforeseen hand that is helping them is unknown to George. He and his, they don't know how or why they're being helped. They know they are being helped. But that is hidden till the end of the book. This is a cliffhanger. And I love the name or the title of the country, Barovia, beautifully done. The title of the book is George Butler. And our author is C.B. Leston. Brian Leston, thank you for joining me today. Where can we get copies of your book? Off the Ex Libris Internet or through, uh, I believe it's now being has been circulated to bookstores across the USA through Barnes and Nobles and people like that. And they also can do a search online for your authorship, C.B. Leston, and keep in touch with you. Yes, Uh, uh, on Google, C.B. Leston, or Charles Butler by C.B. Leston. You have to go beyond Charles Butler because that turns out George Butler, right? George, (laughs) yes. George Butler, it turns out, is... uh, uh, a cutlery manufacturer from she- Sheffield. So, uh, yes, it, there's, there's quite a lot on Google now, installed there by Ex Libris. Author C.B. Leston, thank you for joining me from Great Britain today. Thank you very much. For Ex, for Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. 
Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Right Wing, The Good, The Bad, and The Crazy, and the author is Charles Philip Ryder, and Charles joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Charles. Hello, Steve. How are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, yes. Great. This is a focus on the political right in the United States. You you go all the way back to prohibition. Uh, you go through all the presidents, all the way up, and even going to talk about the presidential campaign of 2016. Uh, you, you have some very strong opinions, and uh, like you say, based on fact and under the pressure from the right, the country is in trouble. The way you say it, that's exactly true. That's it, yes. Well, before we get into the details of, of uh, some of these issues that you want to focus on, the ones you have uh, elaborated on so completely in your book, tell us a little bit about your background and how this book came about. Well, I grew up in a middle-class family in South Bend, Indiana, which uh, one time was the industrial belt. Now it's the rust belt, unfortunately. And my dad worked for Studebaker's, and he belonged to the United Auto Workers. And um, my parents worked hard. They saved money so I could go to college. I went to Ball State University and studied music. And I taught music in, in Indiana and Michigan and California for 28 years. And uh, about, after about 25 years, I was involved in uh, the teachers' union. I was chapter president at uh, one of the school districts I taught at. And I... I uh, led a uh, demonstration at a school board meeting with 120 uh, teachers present, and um, I was a spokesperson along with another person for our grievances. went to law school to become a, a teacher's union attorney. I did go to law school, and I passed the California bar exam, but unfortunately there weren't many jobs available uh, in that field. And um, so I looked around for attorney jobs in, in that field, and I couldn't find any, so I took a job in Southern California at the Imperial County Public Defender's Office, which is, involves, you know, representing the poor on, on criminal cases. And uh, I was there 17 and a half years. I did over 100 jury trials. And uh, a couple of interesting thing is, things are that the first day on the job at the Imperial County Public Defender's Office was my birthday, and I was 50 years old. and um, unfortunately, there was an attorney that was stabbed at the courthouse. And that was, of course, very unusual for that small community. And 
another interesting thing was my first case was a situation where this person family on um, Social Security about $550 a month they were taking in uh, couldn't pay for the trailer that they lived in they got behind on the payments and um, the uh, owner of the trailer repossessed it and the uh, tow company uh, was on television um, at a uh, uh, board of supervisors hearing and my client spoke in front of the uh, board of supervisors and called, called the tow company a crook. <laughs> Believe it or not, that I guess under the law, I know under the law that's that's um, criminal slander, and I've never heard of criminal slander. I'd heard of, of, of course, uh, civil slander, and there's many examples of civil slander in my book, whether it's a Tea Party or, or a John Birch's side or whatever. But anyway, um, I really felt sorry for these people because, you know, limited income, lost their trailer home, and I could see why this guy was outraged. So we did settle the case, but uh, my client pled to... Uh, he pled to a lesser charge. Uh, but I really wanted to take it to a, to trial, but that was my first case, and so my I I took a deal that was offered. He pled to uh, disturbing the peace, which is a very minor charge. And then I uh, when I worked for the uh, public defender's office, I got into more uh, you know advanced trials and criminal cases. I've done some uh, drug possession cases. In fact. Uh, one of the cases involved the Seminola um, cartel from Mexico, and the, the leader of that cartel, Mr. Guzman, was just arrested about a week ago. Mm. And uh, I talk about that on, on my uh, um, website. I have a website, which is um, http uh, colon uh, dash dash www.rightwingdisasters.com and basically on my website I talk about my book and also talk about some other things like Mr. Guzman and the Sinaloa um, cartel I really believe this they're worth trillions of dollars they're the biggest cartel in Mexico and of course most of the money they made in the US and all that money uh, the US could um, try to recover that was uh, a product of drug sales in the US and of course um, um, Mr. Guzman, I think, is going to be extradited to the U.S. He's wanted in Chicago, and I sure hope that the U.S. government goes after him and his money because um, there's a lot of money there, I'm sure of it. And, in fact, Forbes magazine uh, labeled this Guzman guy as a billionaire. Hmm. And does that ever disturb me? I thought we had a war on drugs, but I don't think it's been too effective. <laughs> So, so what's your I take, that, Charles? Well, then I did become an author after I retired from the public defender's office, and this uh, this book, uh, The Right Wing, is, is my first book. What's your take on the Tea Party? Oh, man, I feel sorry. I I have a, a, a chapter in the book on the Tea Party, and it's uh, titled, uh, The Tea Party is Disingenuous. You know, it started out by the Koch brothers, given quite a bit of money to, to organize the Tea Party, and unfortunately a lot of middle class people who are kind of uh, naive uh, joined up, and they haven't done anything positive. 
they haven't done anything positive. Of course, uh, uh, Rand Paul keeps, you know, talking about Bill Clinton. There's nothing positive about that. Rand Paul to talk about the uh, poverty in, in Kentucky. He's from the state of Kentucky. I've been in Kentucky. There's a lot of poverty. He never talks about you know, dealing with anything positive like that. And then uh, Ted Cruz, um, nobody likes him. His own senator, senator uh, comrades don't like him. And, um, you know, they've been obstructionists. And, you know, they, in the House of Representatives, they've obstructed so many, uh, you know, important uh, laws, bills, like, for example, the, the minimum wage. I think they're going to be successful in obstructing the minimum wage uh, bill, which, which was passed in the Senate. And um, I think they'll be successful in obstructing the uh, immigration law bill, which was passed in the Senate. And, you know, uh, they're worse than the 48 or the 1948 Congress that uh, Harry Truman had to deal with. And uh, he called them the do-nothing Congress. <laughs> That's another chapter of my book about Harry Truman and how he had to deal with those um, right-wing types in Congress during those days. You know, it was uh, uh, there were a lot of Southern people, uh, senators in Congress, who had a lot of power. They'd been, in, been there for years, the Dixiecrats and all that. And, but, um, um, yeah, the Tea Party is absolutely a, an obstructionist organization. Their uh, goals are, 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 don't make sense, and uh, I have no use for them. <laughs> So, so as you look at the present-day administration with Obamacare and all that uh, the administration represents, your take on it is that the country is, is, is going down a, a better road, uh, even though we've, of course, got so much unemployment. We still have a lot of employment and a historic high of long-term employment. People have been unemployed for more than six months. And it's four, over four million people in that category. And Obama's done the best he could. Uh, there's been a lot of monetary um, uh, work done by um, the um, Federal Reserve in trying to help the recovery. And there has been a, a pretty tepid recovery uh, since the, the Great uh, Recession. But it hasn't been enough. And what we need is some fiscal uh, stimulus like a, a good jobs bill, and um, I, I mean I don't stand the Republican, the Tea Party. I was for, here's a good example about uh, uh, stimulus in terms of of um, um, rebuilding roads and, and that type of thing, infrastructure. I was in um, I was in Denver for Christmas. On the way back, we drove to where I live in California, and as we got out of Denver, we started up. In the, into the mountains, past a couple of those ski resorts, and one of those, and one of the roads we were on, the road we were on, was the Dwight Eisenhower Highway. And his his program, his Republican program, of course, really helped the United States in terms of infrastructure. It helped in terms of jobs. It helped in terms of national security. And as a result, we have. We have, um, you know, interstate roads all over, from California to to New York. As I was going along the Eisenhower Highway, I, I saw a tunnel, and uh, it was uh, called the, uh, I can't think of the name, just, oh, Jerry, Gerald Ford Tunnel. 
another Republican idea. Gerald Ford was involved in a situation where he, he, when he became president, he, he told his advisors they should cut taxes and they should um, cut back government spending. And his advisors said no. No, you have to use um, Keynesian economics. You have to, because we're in a, we're in a recession. And um, so uh, building infrastructure like the, the, t the tunnel I just mentioned were part of, this, of the Ford program, President Ford's program to bail out the economy. Same thing happened, uh, of course, you know, obviously during FDR's um, presidency, there was a lot of uh, infrastructure building and, and uh, government uh, jobs and that type of thing. But going uh, past uh, Ford, when, it, when we had uh, problems with um, uh, recession in, um, uh, I was about the 1980s, I think, and um, the same thing occurred. Uh, the Republicans um, started spending more money. In fact, during every recession that we've had in the U.S. since the Depression, government spending has increased. And that's true of, of uh, George Bush, uh, his tenure as president, George W. And so the way to get out of uh, recession is, to, is for the government to infuse money into the economy. And George W.'s father also did the same thing. I just referred to that. So that's what needs to be done. Uh, I travel in Europe some because my wife's Italian. And the bridges in Europe are, are much more safe than the United States. There are a lot of bridges in the U.S. that are old and, and should be repaired. Um, the roads are better in, in Europe. Uh, I understand in Beverly Hills, the, there are potholes in some of the streets. I mean, it's just ridiculous that uh, we can't have um, a program where we fix up what needs to be fixed up, and if we have to borrow money, interest rate is still low, and we take care of some of these inf infrastructure problems and put people back to work. We got a couple of minutes left, Charles. Uh, give uh -huh. us your take on the 2016 election. That is the focus of your book as well. Okay. Well, I talk about Hillary Clinton. I referred to her earlier. Um, she has gone through a lot. Uh, the right wing has attacked her many, many times. She's had more experience than I think anybody else running for president. If she does run, she's had so much experience. You know, she's um, worked with her husband in the White House, and she's been a senator from New York, and she was kind of an outsider and did real well. She, uh, the people in New York liked her, and the people in the Senate, the senators liked her too. And um, of course, she's been Secretary of State, and um, so she has probably more experience than any other candidate I can think of that's ever run for U.S. president. Um, as far as the uh, her opposition. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be Ted Cruz. Nobody can stand him. And um, there's talk of him running for president and being successful. And I think who, who may run against uh, Hillary if she runs would be uh, 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 Rand Paul. And I wrote about Rand Paul. And I, you know, he, he might be a, a nice person. He, except I disagree with him 
bringing up, you know, Bill Clinton's past. But um, I think his ideas, as opposed to um, uh, Cruz, are honorable. But his ideas are, are just unworkable. He talks about having a government like we had um, under the Articles of Confederation in the U.S., a small government. We have a, a large government now because we have a very sophisticated, large business society and that type of thing. And so I, I think if, if Hillary runs against Rand Paul, um, I think she'll probably win. Uh, Christie, I think, is out of it. He's, he's, um, uh, I would never have wanted to face him when he was a prosecutor because he's so aggressive. And I don't think he can be trusted. Uh, so I think Christie's out of it with this rich scandal. But um, so I think it might be Paul versus uh, um, Hillary. And uh, I wish Rand Paul would kind of uh, loosen up and and be a little more realistic in his goals because we, he almost you know wants to destroy government. And that, that's that's just not doesn't make sense. That's a crazy idea because, as I said before, we have so many facets of our society that need to be regulated by government and so forth. We've been listening to Charles Philip Ryder. He is the author of his book, The Right Wing, The Good, The Bad, and The Crazy. Charles, tell us, how can we get your book? Uh, you can get my book by ordering it online. Of course, everybody can yeah. order it from exlibris.com. You can order it from exlibris. You can order it from um, uh, uh, your local bookstore. Um, but, and it, like I said, it's available online, and it's also available as an e-book online. Very good. Very good. Well, we appreciate you joining us, Charles, on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Steve, and I appreciate the time to, to talk to you. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.